Knockout Ginger, episode 46, with Cody McKinney, bass player, composer, band leader, Minneapolis. Great dude. My favorite beard oil is Barden Beard Oil, handmade in Toronto, B-A-A-R-D-E-N. They make quality beard care products for quality beards. And I even put it on my head sometimes. My bald head. Uh, I'm a big fan of, of all this stuff. I use the beard wash and the oil all the time. Um, use code KNOCKOUT at checkout for 20% off your order. Thanks for listening. Email me at knockoutginger at gmail.com. F all the haters. How are you? Uh, uh huh. <laughs> How are you? Good, man. Sorry about the uh, the time confusion there. No, it's totally my fault. I I didn't actually like technically look at anything that you sent me. I just saw it said two p.m. and I was like, nah. "Yeah, whoops." Um, this is something I should know, uh, having being born in that time zone. It should be something I'm very familiar with the the back and forth counting in one direction. Yeah, counting's overrated. Look at you, man. I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, it's been... Have I... I think the last time we saw each other in person, you maybe had no children? I think you're right. That's what we call the good old days. I think we were, like... It was close, though. Like, it was definitely, like... I I had come back to New York right to like visit or i think so and we hung is that when we went we went to that um to that music store in like williamsburg or something like hung out for a while and tried out all sorts of gear yeah i think so yeah and we went for coffee i think yeah 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 yeah. i remember yeah the coffee shop had like a plant growing out of the wall or something yeah I guess it was very New York. Yeah, man. Well, happy to to be here. Is this it? Are we doing it right oh, now? We're, we're in it. We're in it. Yeah. <laughs> well, hang on. We take my anti-depression pill. All right. <laughs> you know, I was I was thinking about you. Uh, or about like kind of things that maybe your fans would like. All right. And uh, fan fans is a stretch. <laughs> I was thinking about something your parents would like. <laughs> and uh, I I've been playing. It's it kind of it looks like it's kind of no longer happening. But I've been playing with one of one of your own this woman named Donna Grantis. Do you know her? I don't know her, but I know I definitely know of her. You know of her, like yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So she she was living in Minnesota, 
and started a band. Um, it was like kind of based on, so she was, oh, for people who were, for mom and dad who are listening, Donna Grantis was like the final guitar player for Prince. Right. When they had like, he had, I don't know what it, what you'd call it, but it was almost like a side band within the band. And the band was called Third Eye Girl. Yeah. And so she was in Minnesota and apparently during the tail end of Prince's life, during a lot of these shows, he was showing her a bunch of um, electric miles. And she had never heard electric miles really. And like got super into electric miles and then like he died and then she decided to kind of put a band together in that image, like around the idea of like doing some electric mile shit. Nice. Wrote some songs. So anyway, I was remembering, uh, and I, I know that there's a, a, a bunch of Canadian pride. So she was, she was on my list of things to talk about. Sweet. So were you, everything is a blur. She was supposed to be playing here around the beginning of this whole uh, sickness, <laughs> one could call it. Um, but I th- is that, would that have been you? On that, that would have been me. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, and then something happened. I mean, I know uh, she, she ended up having a couple kids. And I think she moved back to Canada. In oh. the middle of all of this, I think oh, there I was see. kind of like, I didn't talk to her. We had some text messages, like, you know, kind of around the beginning of this thing. But like, um, yeah, I think she moved just to like, she's got two little kids wanting to be around the kids or around the parents, whatever. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Is that, uh, I imagine that it's just on hold. <laughs> you know, I, I would imagine that. It was starting to feel like it was no longer a thing. Um, even if it wasn't communicated about directly, like all of a sudden at, at one point I was playing shows and I'd show up and the band was a little different. And so it was like kind of oompa loompa e like one by one. But it was kind of cool for me because all of a sudden one day the drummer who's a great friend of mine and fucking awesome drummer he just did like taylor swift's two records this whatever this uh sickness he got (laughs) fired without me knowing about it and then it's um jt thomas from uh What's the band? Snarky Puppy. Oh. Yeah, the drummer from Snarky Puppy. And then, like, the keyboard player got fired, and it was Jason Linder, who is, like, the last... You know him? He's, like, from David Bowie. Um, So, like, kind of, like, the very tail end of that was kind of awesome for me, just because all of a sudden I'm playing with these, like, super heavy, you know, worldwide dudes. That's cool. But, But I think I... I may be the final Oompa Loompa. Um, I don't know if you mentioned his name, the drummer that just did the Taylor Swift records. JT Bates. 
Oh, now I'm confused. Who's the snarky puppy guy? Also JT. Oh, I gotcha. Okay. Yep. Okay. So, so when uh, when actually when he came in and 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 did the gig, like when original JT and other JT switched. Right. Got it. <laughs> so, um, did I mean this is like sort of off topic and it's not about you, but is, did that Taylor Swift connection happen because Bonnie Vare is in Minnesota and he's on the Taylor Swift stuff? You know, there's a lot of that in there. It's, it's kind of a weird scene around here. So that those two records were produced by, um, I can't remember, but one of those two brothers that's in that band, the national. Yeah. Um, what are their names? Do you remember their names? I don't know their names. Yeah. So anyway, um, they're really tight with the, the Bonavere crew and do, you know, they, from my understanding from my drummer friend, JT, it's a little bit now more that whole scene is like swimming. Like a couple of them went off and helped do the new, um, Uh, who's the keyboard? Yeah, that song. That's just the way it is. Some things will never change. Uh, Donald Fagan. Let's just say it's Donald Fagan. But anyway, that whole crew, like, they kind of just split off and do people's records. And so a few of them just split off and got hired to do this Taylor Swift record because she really liked what was coming out of that scene like i think the production the content yeah. one of these guys aaron desner maybe from the the national um was like the hand picker of who should be on the record as far as i understand that's cool are the national yeah. from minnesota also no they're just good buddies with the bonavera people i see yeah so we've it's been kind of lucky for musicians in a certain scene around here in the last 10 years there's some national attention that usually minnesota doesn't receive no hmm. that way. minnesota minnesota and toronto i'm telling you yeah the future of the universe they're the silent gems how about you who like what is your playing situation like up there um can you even play right now? No, I can't play right now. I'm the door guy at a jazz club. So, um, I get to see music all the time in regular life, which is perfect. Yeah. And then there was a, a window of like the end of the summer, early fall where we open back up. And then being the door guy... And also being in a situation where the club's like, well, are we going to be open next week kind of thing? Who do we book? So I was like, kind of like next man up sort of thing. So I got to play there sure. a, a handful of times over the break, but, or not the break, the, the break in quarantine or, or whatever you, right. The, the, when COVID went away for a second or, 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 you know, um, but I mean, aside from that, it's just, uh, like reg regular times, I had a, a monthly for my band. Um, 
yeah, regular Toronto pre-COVID was yeah. was really happening. Yeah, I mean, it's, it seems like, I mean, we have probably not to the same degree that you do because I feel like Toronto probably has a special place in the idea of like, well, it's a large city and I mean, Minneapolis is too, but to be, I mean, I bet how much of that city recently in the last four years has been Americans fleeing from. Yeah. That's, is that, is that a thing that has happened? Um, I know one person who who moved, made the move to Montreal. Okay. But I mean I imagine it's a thing. Like the the news <laughs> the news seems to think it's a thing. But I don't really know anyone. Um I mean there's a lot of people moving back. Like my situation like you moved to the states for a bit and now we're all sort of coming back. Which is that's cool. We, if we all come home with our tail between our legs, it's a little less uh, embarrassing. Is not the right word. Like humbling, maybe. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. So, is that a thing? Is that really a thing? Like, did did you go to the states to like kind of carve out your thing, and then it feels like going home is a failure in that department? Um. No, I don't feel that way. I don't Good. feel that way at all. But I, I, um, I definitely would assume that it would appear that way. Hmm. But sure, sure. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like l- the long term plan was like move to New York and live in New York. Right. But shit happens. I don't know. How did you approach the move? Well, the move was kind of um, brought on by my wife was working at MoMA. Right. Oh, sorry. Day. Sorry. Just before you get into that. So for people listening, yeah. uh, Cody and I met at school in New York. And now we're both back where we came from. <laughs> right. Both in our late 20s. With trying to figure out this crazy thing called life, starting up our starting up our families. Mm-hmm. It's all We're starting up some other guy's family, you know, mm-hmm. helping helping plant some seeds in the forest. Yeah, we met at school, and I remember. Well, so my thing, but I've got a question for you. As soon as I'm done, my thing was my wife was working for MoMA. The PS1 over in Queens. Yeah. And it was getting a little crazy over there. Like, they were just going for, like, these weird shows where it would be, like, the head curator would be like, get me six dozen geese by tomorrow. Hmm. And people would be like, we can't do that. We don't have a license for that. I don't care. Get me six (laughs) dozen geese. And so they get him six dozen geese, and then all of a sudden it'd be like a big prop. So anyway, long story short, it felt like that job was like zooming towards a bloody end. And at the same time, she had gotten an offer from um, Minnesota Public Radio, like part of the 
public radio system in the, in the states, and it's one of the bigger ones in the states because a Prairie Home Companion came out of here. It was like one of the earlier ones, so there's a little bit of clout to Minnesota Public Radio. So she just ended up taking it. Like she couldn't tell where her job in New York was going. I had graduated, um, and we did that, which you know some days we're happy about, and some days we're bummed about. I mean, obviously we we love our kids and like starting a family, but as far as like missing New York and shit, like that's, that's heavy. Are you guys? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you. Well, I was just going to ask, like, how are you doing? How the hell are things up there? Like things are totally fine. Like, I mean, how do you, how do you mean? Well, yeah, I just mean like this has infiltrated, I think everyone's day to day. Mm hmm. Um, and mo more particular than anyone, like musicians, like I, I've been thoroughly effed by my government in terms of like any sort of financial reciprocity. Um, cause I just fell through some loophole crack, but like, how are you doing with that? There's no money coming in. I mean, there, there is, there was, yeah. um, it, it's like an, another thing that we have to realize is that even though we're we feel like we're in trouble here it's like not even close to how bad it is for americans so i think we have that that's kind of keeping us like positive it's like oh it could be so much worse kind of kind of thing like we're, we're we're locked down but it's like it's almost like it's precautionary like we don't even have like a fraction of the numbers that the states have you know sure. so it's like on one hand it's it sucks but we're okay and the government's giving us money so like there's not a lot to co be complaining about sure. you know some of these rules are getting a little nuts like they're like you can't we can't play hockey outside so like grown grown adults are climbing the fence at hockey arenas at night to play hockey and then they're getting tasered <laughs> so like so like that's a problem but it's also not a real like that's kind of a hilarious thing to be a problem at this it's point a hilarious problem i mean it's it's a wonderful problem in that it is it is just so much a blatant stereotype of Canadians. Yeah. I need my hockey so bad. I'm willing to climb this fence and get my balls tasered. <laughs> yeah. But so like there's Toronto is the outdoor rink capital of earth. Okay. We have 60 something outdoor ice rinks. And at the moment it's illegal to play hockey on all of them. But you can still go public skate. Well, no, we're locked down hardcore. But at the beginning of the winter, it was like, okay, you can only. All of the skating rinks are only open during daylight, and you ha and it's like only a family event, so it's just like slow skating, which is great. Yeah. Just can we have one rink out of the sixty something? You know, like. Totally. <laughs> Totally. I mean, hockey is a, such a different 
thing in how that this disease could possibly transmit. You know, I think I think NHL is like, aren't they the only professional sports team that hasn't had a case? There's been some cases this season, but oh, have there? Okay, yeah, there was no case when they did the bubble to finish the rest of last season. Right, they did. A, they NBA just had bubble. a like straight up lockdown bubble, and there was no cases. Yeah. But now a couple teams have already been like, it's like anything. Like they're going to get, I'm sure each team will get run over by COVID at some point. But yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, I don't know if you guys are terribly into football or American football. A little bit. Um, we have a team here, obviously the Vikings, but like I just have gotten more and more sick of football in terms of like, what they stand for socially and like, you know, like the whole, everything that the fallout of Colin Kaepernick and all that stuff just kind of really turned me off to the whole league. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is kind of amazing how they're dealing with COVID and that like they will feel the team and then they'll find out that like 15 people have COVID on their team and then they'll make those 15 people go away for like a week and that's how they're handling it it's just amazing yeah like they just don't give a shit at all yeah i mean and 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 i don't know maybe they shouldn't yeah (laughs) yeah i don't know they're like as uh i mean it's hard to people who own teams I imagine they're not so painting with broad strokes here, but I imagine uh, a lot of these guys that own teams are not super likable. (laughs) Like there's that, that, that like just the, like the, the stereotype of a billionaire is not Mm -hmm. the, the best stereotype, I guess, or whatever. I don't know why, why am I covering my trails here? I don't know any of them and no one, none of them are going to hear this. They're probably a bunch of bozos, but, I'm sure there's some nice ones. Um, sure. Part of it is like they're kind of doing, they're all losing money, right? Mm-hmm. Doing this. So part of it is like there is an element of them saying like the show must go on, so to speak, that I have a lot of uh, respect for. It also doesn't seem super safe. So who knows what the right. Yeah, yeah. I Perspective mean, perspective is, you know. It also seems like here, since the like, um, the the medicine or whatever the what do you call them? Uh, vaccine. Vaccine. It seems like since the vaccine came out, um. People are more, there's a, a little more willingness to like risk it. Kind of, the, it seems like the general feeling is like, oh, there's a cure right there. Like we can go out, we can get sick and there'll be a cure, but I don't, it's still not a cure. It's just a like, if you haven't gotten it yet, this will help you to not get it. But like, it's still like, if you get it, it's still horseshit. Yeah. You know, like, right? I don't think they've figured out any other. Like, they figured out some ways to make it more comfortable for some people, but I think, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. 
Is this enough hilarious material? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but how's, so like, how's stuff going for you guys? Pretty good. Um, we live in a neighborhood where a lot of our friends are. Um, we owned this house before we moved out to New York and then came back and just, uh, when we came back, it, it's in a neighborhood that like had turned over, like it had been a little lower income neighborhood, kind of blue collary. Um, by the time we came back, um, a bunch of breweries and distilleries and music venues had popped up right in our neighborhood. So it became like the place to live. That's cool. Yeah. So it was kind of a nice thing to come back to after being in New York, obviously where, um, you know, it's like that all the time. I was in Greenpoint. I'm trying to remember where you were out in like Bed-Stuy or something, right? Uh, yeah, I was mostly in like, at the time it was East Williamsburg because right. of real estate. And, uh, then I, the last couple of years I was in Bushwick. Bushwick. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it was nice to come back to Minnesota, a place in Minnesota where it, it kind of felt like it had some like energy in the same way that New York has some energy. Obviously nothing can compare, but, um, it's been hard from a work standpoint for me, from a playing standpoint. Um, you know, I came back and kind of got to work with like, you know, I'm from here. So I came back and I already had some, like a bunch, you know, it's a small enough scene where I was able to easily plug right back in. Um, and some really fun and, and interesting things had happened between moving back and COVID. And now it just kind of seems like a, a, a weird holding pattern, especially for some, I mean, do you show this visually or is this uh, all audio? It'll be all audio, except I, I, I cut out like a minute or 45 seconds just for Instagram. Oh, sure. But for the most part, it's just audio. So for those of you that can't see me, um, I'm a little further along my, my human journey than our beautiful hosts, Mike. Not by, not by much. Not by much? How old could you possibly? I don't think by much. No, I think I think by more than maybe you think. <laughs> I was definitely like the old. I was the old guy at school, and uh, well, it depends what you mean by old guy, but um, before I tell you my age, I have kind of a funny story that right. was. Um, at some point at school, I decided like, I really won't need to get some weed. And so I, uh, asked a fellow student, like, Hey, where can I get some weed? God damn it. Might've been like, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. It might've been like, I missed the part. You know, as soon as you said buy weed, my headphones fell off. I needed to buy some weed. So I asked a fellow student, like, where can I buy weed? And they're like, oh, come by our, 
my dorm room at this time. <laughs> so, you know, on like a Tuesday, I showed up at like the dorms and signed in and they let me up and they let me in and it's like a, a shared kitchen, social area mm-hmm. done with like four or five rooms off of that, like isolated bedrooms. And so I'm in the socializing room to like buy some weed and then like other students that don't know me, but that I've had class with or that I've seen, you know, whatever are coming out of their rooms, you know, being jokey, like whether they're in their towels or just in their boxers, then they see me and they're like, Nork. (laughs) They think I'm there to like, to like bust their operation. I'm like, it's an old guy that likes weed. So, uh, do you want me to how cut? How old do you think I am? How old did you think I was when I was there? Um, can I keep that story in, or do you want the? You can keep that story in. The weed smoking on the down. All right, cool. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all this, I, I speak very freely all the all time. Right. <laughs> um, if I had to guess, I would say that you are at the most ten years older than me. And you are 31. A little older. Just a little, though. I'm 11 years older. I'm 42. I was like, that was a stretch. That was me. Was that, was, that was me stretching. I after think it's you, my... after you said, uh, I'm older than you think. Oh, sure. You stretched out. You, you tried to compromise for that. Yeah. Yeah. So. I uh, I turned 42 in May, and um, oh man, so I wanted to use my birthday as a, uh, I, I noticed on like Facebook, you could use your birthday as like a way to like give, try to help people, like yeah. give money away to like a cause or whatever. And so I chose Jackie Robinson Foundation. We share this, this a similar love of baseball. Yeah. Um, and like, of course, Jackie Robinson, you know, social justice warrior kind of in, in baseball. Uh, and so I chose that on Facebook, but also because I'm 42, I'm not super like um, always on top of my tech stuff. I did something wrong. And it's like in order for me on Facebook to advertise to my friends, hey, it's my birthday. In lieu of gifts, why don't you send $10 to the Jackie Robinson Foundation? I fucked up that process and accidentally gave to the Jackie Robinson Foundation $60 six times. Like I screwed up. I was intending on giving it once. Mm-hmm. And I I did it once and then it, I thought it would show up instantly on Facebook and be like, show all, you know, everyone like in lieu of da da da, please give to this. And it didn't. And I tried it again and still didn't show. Tried it six total times and got fed up and kind of went to bed. And I checked my bank statement the next day. And I had given like a lot of money to the Jaguar. <laughs> money that I don't actually have. It's like I'm not working. But in my head, I'm trying to figure out, like, how do I call the Jackie Robinson Foundation and be like, you know that money that I gave you so that, like, poor black kids can go to college? 
Can I have that back? <laughs> I need to buy weed. <laughs> Did you call them to try oh, to get it back? No, I like try. I kind of had the conversation in my head, and I was just like, "That money's gone. You gotta walk away." <laughs> Yeah. Damn. That's yeah. uh I it could be worse. It could be worse. It could be it worse. Could, it could have been ten times. Could have been ten times and it could have been based on how accidents can happen on the internet, it could have been a disastrous foundation that you gave to. Like Totally, exactly. I gave to white people against every other kind of people. Speak, speaking of our our favorite question here on Nako Ginger, uh, your top five least favorite ethnicities. Go. That's a that's a joke. Uh, relax. This is comedy comedy moment sponsored by Barden Beard Oil. Nice. Um, keeps my beard feeling all right. And you can use code knockout at checkout for 20% off your order. I like that you don't try to oversell it. <laughs> it's good you're shit. Like, put this in your beard. It'll be fine. Yeah, I do a I do one out front in post, a longer, a longer ad read. But <laughs> um you have kind of sorry. If, if, let me know. I, I'm a you know me. I'm a talkative guy. Like uh, and I, and I'm not. So this works out quite nicely. <laughs> I could ask you questions all day. Um, one thing that I've always really liked about you, I remember meeting you uh, in a an ensemble. That's where I remember it, at least. Yep, that's true. And also, just side note. We paid how much to go to school, and we had two bass players in the same ensemble. But we'll keep that. We'll put that out there for another day. Exactly. Exactly. Um, any other two bass player ensemble would have probably been disastrous in my head. And I, I think I'm in retrospect, I'm really glad it was us. Yeah. Because I think that we like both as musicians and as just like humans worked well together in that situation where they're you know and maybe it's a bass player thing i feel like bass players are a lot easier to like get along with yeah bass players are tough tough not to like right i've had this conversation several times on this podcast and i have a very hard time thinking about a peer of mine that plays the bass that i dislike yeah I know there's there's a little bit of a I, I think without even knowing it as like if you're a young person getting into bass, I think without even maybe rationalizing it this way, there's a part of the instrument that is highly empathetic to what everyone else is going through. Right? Like, oh the you know we're having to assess the entire platform of what's going on and try to feed everyone or respond to everyone as though like, yeah, man, cool. Yeah, cool. You know, it's like a dad listening to like your little kids stories, like pretending that they're interesting. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Really? <laughs> oh, cool. That sounds, 
But yeah, totally. Like I, and then the, also like it made me think like why didn't we do more Ornette tunes in that ensemble? Uh, I know exactly why. We did kind of some. I don't remember. Do you remember tunes that we played in that? Uh, I remember we did a we did uh far too many Horace Silver tunes. Yeah. We yeah, some, you really wanted it to be like a, like a groove jazz thing. Almost. Yeah. Um, we did some. That was the Charlie Parker semester. So we did play some Charlie Parker. Which I'm going back to lately. Hmm. I don't know if you have this experience in your in your base life of like suddenly feeling like there's a hole in your jazz history that needs a little filling in. Yeah, there's holes everywhere. Yeah, holes everywhere, exactly. I am a Swiss cheese bass player. But I've been going back lately and I've been thinking like for as much as I like really despise this certain modern bass player, the six-string Federa playing bass player that wears like um, athletic gear as though they're going to go like, they can't decide, should I play a gig or should I work out? I hate that shit. I don't know. If, do you know what I'm talking about? Those guys? Yeah, Yannick Wizzala. Yannick Wizzala. <laughs> I mean, there's no doubt that that dude is putting a ton of time on music but at what end like that mm. music sucks yeah <laughs> i agree i um, no sorry continue i was oh gonna... well what i was gonna say where this was all going was i think i've always appreciated i think that you and i uh especially like i learned this early on playing with you was like we were far more interested in finding out like what the freedom of the instrument means, what the freedom of the music means and like moving forward with an understanding that I think sometimes jazz is like a war, not a, not a little like tickle party at a, at a sleepover, mm. which is how I hear the six string Federa bass is playing. You know, you dig in and you, you like you beat the living hell out of your bass at times. I see you practice. I see you put up your your uh, practice vids. You play. You get your action on your electric like that high, and then you play these like angular patterns that like literally would never belong in any number one or like chart topping song ever. Which I, I appreciate that about you. <laughs> purposefully try to find music that will sound and make people feel nervous. Yeah. Which is what I think you're supposed to do. Like, why does everyone think that music is supposed to be this? Like, let's put it on in the background and it'll be relaxing. Like, you don't do that with anything that's important to you. Right. I don't, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> There's like uh so that reason of, that thing that you just described is why I originally left Toronto. I kind of got sick of that whole thing. The Yannick kind of people? 
or just uh um or that music is polite and courteous and the polite courteous thing yeah uh that's why i left and um uh having to deal with i i wasn't expecting to have to deal with that at school in new york yeah. and that was a ser- like having so that first semester i was in that ensemble with you and i was also in the coltrane ensemble with reggie yeah so that was like a very like uh the juxtaposition was um uh, unmanageable sure probably um so in, on one hand you i've got like my hero telling me you're doing it keep doing it and then in ensemble with you the instructor's like make sure you make sure you play the the whole triad built off the ninth when you hit that when you hit bar 37 and i'm like what i i I know i know but whatever to each their own uh you you have you have bleeping capabilities you have the bleep technology or the mute technology yeah i so the what i do is um i always regardless of if if it's a good story or a positive story or a negative story, I always cut out school names. Gotcha. Uh, because no free ads. Sure. I, and I, I, they I, don't I, care I, about me. So why would I care about them? Yep. And then I occasionally cut out if it's manageable. I, if the story's weird, I cut out people's names and keep stories in, but sure. usually I find that it's kind of tough. Sure, because you just keep referring to and referring to. Mm. So, uh, what do you? Rem- I can't remember the name of our instructor that was for our uh, our ensemble together. Rich- That's right. Yeah. He Focus. later on asked me to like to play with him outside of school, like to play in his. Um, he was really into like. Uh, Brazilian music mm-hmm. and like I I don't know a ton about Brazilian music as far as like in depth you know like people so there's a lot of I know I know more than like when a jazz chart says Latin feel I know more <laughs> than that I don't but, uh, I never ended up doing it he wanted me to play like five or six string like fretless for it and I was just like the last i had heard about steve coleman was he was doing something kind of crazy in philadelphia where he was doing like a year-long residency at some small club like every night for like a year and this was right before the the disease hit and I was making some serious plans to go out to Philadelphia for like a week just to like I I haven't spent much time in Philadelphia but to see Steve Coleman I was gonna wait until they were like in the middle of the residency when they're just hitting on all cylinders yeah 
and then go out there. Cause like Tid is like, as far as electric bass players, that dude is amazing. Yep. He was in band. He you was know, one of the BAMP instructors when I did that program. Oh, that's right. You went to BAMP, man. I'm so jealous. I don't. That be. seems. Don't be. It wasn't that great. You're lying. You're so fucking lying. It was like being in Field of Dreams for Philly Jazz, wasn't it? So here's the. I went and Vijay just purely by accident, he didn't take enough drummers. So first week, I'm in an ensemble with. Uh, a bunch of freaks like it was awesome week one was incredible he just put me with he put me with a band full of freaks from new england conservatory and we had no drummer and tyshawn was leading the ensemble so he was like all right i'll drum so i got so i got to play with him like sometimes twice a day for a week and we did two gigs and it was great and then the wheels fell off and you, you realize pretty quickly that you're stuck on a mountain for two more weeks with a bunch of people that you don't particularly want to be around. And it gets dark real quick. Tell, tell me. Tell me. Uh, it was a very... There were a lot of folks. Okay. Um, lots, of, lots of jock jazz. Mm-hmm. Lots of bros. It was just a lot. Like they were playing Cherokee and Giant Steps at the session every night. And there was a point where there was a point where even Vijay sort of gave up on us. Like he didn't even every year he takes the group for a hike. He didn't even take us for a hike. Oh man. It was like a whole it was dark. But that but for the first week was a, a game changer. Yeah. But also like without that experience, that mishap, it would have been a really, yeah. So you're obviously in a, a little bit of rarefied air in that BAMP is in your home country. Is that a place that you had been before? Not since Once I was or... a child, like, okay. like three or something. So I've never been there. Um, I just see the pictures, and every time I see the pictures, I am in absolute awe of how picturesque and inspiring it seems to be. Like, I would imagine, like, uh, oh, what's his name there? Uh, Black. Uh, do you know the bass player for the Bang on a Can group? You know those guys? I know the guys, but I don't know the, the band, uh, the, the bass player. Robert Black is okay. his name. He did an, an entire record of him on his upright in Utah in the, like, whatever that whatever that area is, Moab. Mm. You know what I'm talking? Yep. Like, all those crazy rock formations out in the middle of the desert. And he recorded an entire bass record communing with the sounds of that region. So he's like a fucking deep dude. Um, not like a jazz player, you know, like he can't make things out of nothing in the same way that, um, you know, our heroes can like, he's, he's more of a classical guy, but it's still like the, the mindset I think is there for him. So I, I always imagine that seeing vamp, but it's like, 
even kind of like still want to do it. Yeah. So there's a, so I would definitely, as a, as someone who has done the jazz one or the jazz and improvised music or whatever, there's another one a couple weeks later. Uh, There might even be some overlap some years. Um, It's run by ICE. Oh, yeah. International Contemporary Ensemble. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure Tyshawn stays and teaches at that one. And like Peter Evans is one of the main people that comes up to teach. But I've, I've heard that that's the way to go. So that one sounds, is that like a little more like new music? Yeah. Kind of like improvisation yet. Yeah. Okay. I feel like that would be more my. Yeah. But all, and also you can go yourself. So like there's specific programs, like you go to the jazz program, you go to the ice program, or, or you can just apply to be there as a solo artist and they give you a hut in the woods. Yeah. Or you can, you can go as a band. How do you spell it? It's, B-A-N-N-F? B-A-N-F-F. B-A-N-F-F. And then how do you say... I, I kind of... When I used, I used to be a smoker, mm. and I used to smoke Marlboros, but I'd never say it because I never felt comfortable saying it. I'd always just say, you pack of marbs. I'd like shorten it. In Banff, I feel similar. Like, I don't feel like I'm saying it correctly. Banff. Banff. Yeah. It no, was I'd, weird to put an N in there. I put an Bam. 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 It's almost Bam. it's almost an M. That's how I say it. I yeah. say it. I think with an M. Bam. Yeah. But it also yeah. is like, what are they called? Is that onomatopoeia where the the word that you're saying is like the sound that it makes, like pow or yeah. <laughs> I don't know where we're. Going. <laughs> Um, I, 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 I want to make sure that you, you kind of talk about all the things, but I did have like a couple of things that just seeing as how it's a podcast that I'd like to promote if that was okay. Do it, please. For the love of God, please. Save me from myself. (laughs) Like so many of these things are like, yeah, it's still, we're, uh, still locked down practicing a lot. Uh, uh, these, how about these masks? We're still, there's guys where people are still getting sick. How much longer? Like it just, no one has anything to talk about. Like, yeah, well, I, I, uh, good. I, I just don't want, I don't want you to feel like I'm stepping on toes or anything. So step away or, I mean, that's the wrong, that came out wrong. Keep stepping. (laughs) Keep on stepping, yeah. bro. Um, I was trying to, even from the beginning of the whole pandemic, whatever, I was, I've been trying to like continue some things that I'd had going on in life before. And like a couple of those things have like, are either like done to fruition or are in final stages. But there's a couple of things that I'm happy that have come out that, if your listeners are interested, um, there's two records that I came out with over the quarantine times. One of them I would have invited you to play on had you been in Minneapolis, but it was uh, a piece that I wrote. Um, that was called 
several several behaviors for multiple bases and it's um about a 45 minute long piece so the idea behind it was more um i wanted to get a bunch of both electric and upright players together um initially like the thought was like it would be kind of funny to just like show the scene how dependent you are on bass players and i've got all of them on this gig tonight so no one else gets to have a gig was <laughs> one part of it that i thought was fun um the other part was it, it was very gestural in nature so i tried to take the element of time and itch completely out of it and just have it all be gestural um so it's this club that is really supportive in the twin cities of all sorts of different kinds of music um and if there you know i i would say it's it would not be dissimilar from like what's the club uh, called it's called ice house Hmm. Um, i always forget this because there's a comedy club in la called the ice house so the ice house comes to my mind and i'm like no that's the comedy club what's it i always forget you know but whatever sorry to interrupt No, 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 no. So this ice house, it's owned by a buddy of mine. Um, and it's been super supportive of, of the arts community since it, uh, it was born when I was living in New York, when we were living in New York. But they have allowed me to do all sorts of weird shit there. Um, and this is one of them where there's a whole balcony that's usually seating. And I was able to take over the entire balcony and put 10 bass players up there and then the crowd sat down on the floor and some of them up on the stage. Um, And then it was like this hour long gestural piece that we recorded and that I put out on Bandcamp there that you could see. So um, if you like weird bass music, I think that that one sounds really good and interesting and squawky. um, So when you say gestural, is that like... Was, were you conducting or was someone conducting? Um, the conduction, I, I would say, happened more in... I wish The score is somewhere around here. I just can't find it. But it's, it's a text score. So within the text score, it says something like... So I'll have the... I had the players numbered 1 through 10 around this big horn. And so it would be like... I wish I could find it. But it would be like uh, basis one and th- or one and ten. Start playing a pulse, and let the pulse rise and fall when it feels appropriate. Basis two and nine join or something like that. Mm, okay. So it's a series of instructions on how this thing should move, and like a whole bunch of things that I was hoping to hear out of these multiple bass players at different times, such as like half of them playing some really nice melodic stuff and the other half of them literally using their fists to hit their bases. So like those two things are happening simultaneously. So a bunch of textures that I tried to like come up with. Um, and I probably could have expanded on it more, but I, I like what happened. And uh, yeah, you can listen to it on Bandcamp if you're interested under, if it's under my name, Cody McKinney. Mm. There was another one that came out around the same time or shortly after on Bandcamp that 
um, was it, it's a part of this series that I've been doing for the last number of years called Sound Simulacra. Yes, this one's also on Spotify, right? So it's kind of back and forth. So the Spotify thing is this was a once a month thing up until the disease came. And it was once a month with a different artist from a different discipline. Oftentimes, sometimes they're jazz musicians, but sometimes they were electronic. We've had dancers and um, pianists and vocalists and all sorts of different people. And the idea behind it was the guest would do a solo set short one under a half an hour and then myself and a partner of mine a great keyboard player and kind of a electronic musician as well this guy named john keston uh the two of us will support or or all, all play as a trio so we did that for like four years had some really great players we had um this great uh, kind of legendary guitar player named dean mcgraw was really great. We've had um, this woman, Manque Indosi, who's like um, affiliated with um, the Art Ensemble of Chicago folks. Um, Douglas Ewart, who's loosely a you know saxophone player with Art Ensemble, who now lives in Minneapolis. So we've we've got four years worth of that stuff on Spotify, or not on Spotify on um, Bandcamp. Hmm. No, not Bandcamp. What's the other one? SoundCloud? <laughs> On SoundCloud. So all of those, like four years worth of these these gigs can be heard on SoundCloud if you go to soundsimulacra.org. That's the website that those are housed at. But then from that experience, we decided at the Ice House, which is a larger venue, to have a kind of mini... I, I had a month where I was booking once a week at that venue and I was trying to bring in interesting stuff. And one of those weeks I brought in the idea of sound simulacra, but this time let's have three guests and let's do like a round Robin that kind of feels random. So there'll be solo sets, there'll be duos, trios, quartets, etc. Mm-hmm. But all of them, the only constraint would be a loose element of time. You go up there, do approximately seven minutes. It was like the idea. And if it ends up being 15, then it ends up being 15. If it ends up being two, then it ends up being two. So that's the only constraint. We recorded that whole thing and it came out so well, we decided to mix it and master it and come out with a record. And so that one also, um, a sound simulacra is available. I think you can get that on like any, you can stream it on like Apple Music or whatever. Right. But um, so those are a couple of things that I had worked on and I'm happy about over the, the quarantine in case anyone out there is interested to hear some of the stuff that I do. Um, Got one that's going to be coming out um, that I just want a grant for to finish. Um, we have a pretty great grant as you guys do too in Canada, actually, now that I think about it, there's like great fun funding for the arts. Um, and we have that in Minnesota and we have the Minnesota state arts board which awards a good deal of money. It's like, it's a percentage. It's, it's a part of like a gas and cigarette tax. 
And then it's like every time you get gas or buy cigarettes, a penny gets thrown into a fucking bucket. Huh. And they end up getting, you know, millions of dollars every year. And they go out to these programs for artists. So I applied, you know, I've, I've applied in the past and gotten a few of them. This this year it was a little different. The The arts board was like, let's just like make way more grants available for people, for artists, because everyone's hurting. Um, and so I got one. It's just to finish up this record that is essentially um, a piece I wrote, an evening length piece. It was kind of like... Um, I, it was loosely based on that. I not on the Shakespearean actual speech, but the idea of the stages of man. You know, so like you're a baby, and here's kind of how you experience the world. And so Shakespeare had this thing where he had the seven stages of man, and you know, all the actors, you know, all the world's a stage. Some of them, that, that speech. Mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, I, I don't know. that was an interesting idea. <laughs> it's fami- like that, that last part you said is familiar. Yeah. To me. So in, in that speech, it's like all the world's a stage, all of us merely actors. And then it goes into this thing where it talks about the stages of man. And when you're a child, you do this. And when you're of adolescence, you do this. And I thought it'd be interesting to write a piece of music but in some way tried to express that movement through life without notation necessarily, but similar to the idea of being gestural um, and to like put an ensemble together that could do this. So it's seven piece ensemble in seven sections, seven movements. And I tried to like loosely go through that. Um, So that will be coming out hopefully, you know, by, I don't know, summer. Nice. I'm working on a thing now that's like heavily, heavily inspired by this Bonnie Vare group and just how that band sounds sonically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm taking my time on it and I'm just like sending it around to get people to play on and, and it's a slow process. It's a quarantine project, but I'm also sort of taking my time because I don't know what to do with it. Like making a record and probably not making physical copies and probably Uh not doing a release show because there's nowhere to play at the moment. It's like, what, what are we, so what is it then? You know, like, I guess I waited out. I don't know. Like it's, it's just, I have a problem putting in all this time and then just posting it on the internet. That's a confusing process to me. I think we're in a hard, we're in a hard spot right now because although I, I I don't think that either one of us are necessarily like these people that like value um, money in the way that maybe the rest of the world seems to in, in a certain way, like obviously money is like a necessity it's a tool for us to like live and we're in a in an art form that used to be able to make some of its money via selling a physical copy of something that you put your heart and soul into and now 
even though I just spent like 20 minutes trying to advertise that I've got these recordings you can buy. <laughs> like it's such, it's really not uh, sustainable anymore. But we also don't want to cut ourselves off at the legs by working really hard at something and then just giving it away because we're essentially writing our own um, farewell letter to being a professional musician. Yeah. I mean, which I have no, I have no problem with it, honestly. Like the principle, the principle of giving away my music is like, all right, whatever. Sure. The, the problem that I'm specifically talking about right now is like when you don't go through like no physical copy and no tour or show to go along with it is where I, get confused sure but i guess yeah there's that bigger problem of like we're just putting our shit on the internet so i don't know where the balance is but where i'm at with my shit i'm just thrilled if it's out there for people to hear right so i don't know I don't know how long this phase of my life will last, but I think eventually doesn't it seem like we eventually have, we get into places as human beings where it's like, you can sit in a problem for a long time and just exist. But eventually I think we want to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And I think like something like what you're talking about, I've been thinking about this as well. Like I think about, the idea of a physical item or something, just something that you would buy. You buy something that you have value. You place value on a pair of jeans or a upright base or whatever it is. But like anything else, if you wash those jeans a thousand times, they're going to start to get threadbare and you're going to have your hot date on some Saturday night to go out and hear free jazz. And you're going to want to wear those jeans that make your butt look good. And yet they're going to be threadbare. And so you say, no, I got to wait. So you have this value system on something that naturally ages. And the problem with music now is that it doesn't naturally age. It stays the exact same age in the exact same condition that it was meant to stay in from the time the mixing finished or the time the mastering finished. And now you've got something that no matter what a consumer or a fan, if that is better language, now you've got something that they know they can fucking do anything, but you're not going to lose the record because it's out there everywhere. It's in the internet. It's not going to lose quality if you can't hear it so great right now, you'll get a new pair of headphones or a new wireless speaker or something like that. But I feel like the value system has gone down because it will always be there and it won't age. And I think that that is the thing that we should, as musicians, start figuring out is we have to care about music as much as people tend to care about their fellow human beings, even as much as they tend to care about just their favorite pair of jeans because music seems to be the only fucking thing now that will not age so therefore out of that construct i think takes the value system out of it for people 
or like it lessens it. If you if you know it's always going to be there, why assign a greater sense of value to it? It's a part of a subscription, you know. Mm. You know you can always go back to it. It's there, but I would rather start trying to build in some planned obsolescence into some of these listening so that when people are going after it, they're listening to it. It's a finite experience, not an infinite experience, you know? Curious about your, what do you think of that? It's very confusing. (laughs) What part? Um, emotionally like it's uh, like the one for me the silver lining through all of this is I know that I can put all of my time and whatever resources friends resources into an album and then I can put it on line and it's there forever. That's the silver lining for me kind of thing. Like knowing that this thing that I poured myself into for months or years will just stay the way how I want it to be on the internet forever. So the fact that there's an actual artifact on the internet that won't age is pretty fucking awesome. Also, it, it is. Yeah, it's it's a deeper I think it's a deeper conversation. I think about being a kid or younger and maybe right before I went to Berkeley, having my first copy of Kind of Blue. Did you go to Berkeley right from high school? No, I probably had two, three, probably five years. I toured the band. Um. But I think about kind of blue and it eventually gets scratched, it falls out, a, it falls in your car onto the passenger's seat mm-hmm. or onto the floor and it gets scratched up. You got to buy another copy, but you have to buy another copy of kind of blue. You can't not have a copy of kind of blue. That's like correct. A cardinal sin. Yeah. It's like I'm on probably copy number five, but it's a, in a certain way, it's a proving ground for its value to me that I want what you're saying. I want a copy of this that sounds as intended. But what I don't want or what seems to not like not make sense is everything else that we buy is subject to the idea of having to go through life. You move to a new apartment, that thing gets dinged. That thing gets banged. It gets broken. You split up with a partner and they end up taking it in like the split up. Whatever it is. Somehow records have not become a a part of that natural forward process. So I think that you're absolutely right in the idea of having your record out there forever in its intended purpose. I think that that is a silver lining. But I also think that there was a 
time when we valued recorded music in a way that we were forced to take care of it. We were forced to take the record and put it back in its sleeve. We were forced to put the tape back in its cassette thing in a holder in our car, whatever that is, whatever that process is of taking care of your shit. You used to do that with music. And now we don't. And I think that because we don't have to, there's a value system on a deeper psychological level that people are like, oh, it'll be there. I don't really have to listen to the whole record. I'll get back to it. I'll come back. You know, you sit down, you fucking listen to, to kind of blue top to bottom. You know that ordering. You know how one song reflects against another song. Um, and that's like an intended version, I think, of listening. I listen to like, I've been listening to like a lot of the older Miles Davis recordings lately, like walking and working and humping and whatever those old, you know, there's like six of them. Humping and dumping. Humping and dumping. <laughs> and... I think that there is like an intention behind listening to a lot of these records that is not about a single, you know, like pop music obviously is about the single, but I feel like if we can start coming out with records in a way that is implements this idea of taking care of it, maybe it's a new way of coming out with music. Maybe it's a new website, but where, it requires more of you as a listener in order for it to maintain its original form. Maybe you have to, maybe you buy a subscription to a website that houses your music and then you are granted some access to this website and that's where the music lives. But as a consumer, you have to like go in there and you got, you have to listen to one song once a week. Otherwise, the quality of it starts to degrade. Maybe it's up as a wave file, but if you don't listen to that thing once a week or once a month, the quality of it degrades from wave down to MP3 or something like that. Like something to require the listener to get on board by having some sort of give and take with the music as opposed to it being such a uh, singular relationship music comes at people people sit and just go I, that's what tv is but i'd rather have it be more interactive like this is living shit man participate in it or it will go away i don't know probably won't happen but i can dream i've got some some thoughts i think I would love some thoughts i um, i guess yeah. first of all the there's this do you know this company i think they're called nouvelle yeah, I just um, Frizzell and Schoolies Ferrison did a uh, a record, right? I think so. Yeah. So that's yeah. like part of that's part of this model, but it's part of sort of this. It's like only subscription, so you have to like tra subscribe to a whole season or something or whatever they call it, mm -hmm. and it's only on vinyl, and it's way too expensive. Yeah. So that's the third one's kind of a huge problem, but um, so like uh, that that Tim Byrne, Dave King record um, or band. Oh, broken shadows. Broken shadows. So they put out their yeah. record on Nouvelle, 
but the only way for me to get it is if I pay $400 for the whole season of vinyl. Mm -hmm. So I got to buy like five or six different records, which is still, that's still so much money for five or six records. Mm -hmm. Whatever, but whatever. No, it is a hundred percent. Uh, so if there was a different version of that that was cheaper or like maybe more records, more records for less money is maybe a more sustainable way to combat this or something. Um, I just had the idea of, so for me, there's an appeal to vinyl and tapes because it's like, there's just a, a continuous side of music. So is one of the things here, like as far as digital consumption goes, even though I have a, a record with say 10 tracks on it, when it comes to digital consumption, do we then just put it online formatted as, as if it's two sides of a record? So it's like a listening experience all the way through. Is that something that combats this problem? It could. I mean, I mean, it won't deteriorate, as you were saying. But that, but it, that listening that, experience. There's, there's at least an activity involved, and I will say, like, I wrote a couple things down while you were talking, just so I remembered them, because we can all see how well my memory works. <laughs> I think right now Nouvelle is in a. I think that they're on the right path, although it is not good for us yet. But I think what it is trying to do is right the ship. And I think the idea of having it, I think about fandom. Let's just think about being a fan for a second, if we want to like reduce it to that. If you're a fan, so Calgary, uh, Flames? Sure. What about them? Is that your team? No. Who's your team? The Winnipeg Jets. Oh, that makes way more sense. And if you mix that up again, I'm coming over. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, as a Winnipeg Jets fan, mm -hmm. do you have a... Do you go to games? Yeah. Do you have a, a Winnipeg hat? Many, several. Yeah. You can see. Yeah, you have a, a shirt or a jersey. Yep. So we have all these things. It proves our fandom, right, in a certain way. We are such fans. We own shirts. We own hats. We own whatever it is. And that's a capitalist view of it. But still, it is saying this is a value to me. Nine times out of ten, the people who are, like, saying that they value music don't own shit. They own their phone. And it's like, I don't think that that's actually being a fan of the music. That is, like, literally the least that you could do. So if you're a fan of a baseball team, you're going to buy a hat. If you're a fan of music, fucking buy the subscription. You know? Not just the, the Spotify one. In fact, don't ever buy a Spotify subscription. Spotify can literally lick my butt. Yeah, except this is also, you can listen to this podcast on Spotify. So also, uh, 
Spotify <laughs> is the greatest thing to come out. Um, no, but no one from Spotify will hear you saying any, or hear me saying anything, right? You can edit out whatever yeah, you want. I was mostly kidding. Spotify pays almost the least to like musicians, and it's another way to make, um, you know, Megan the Stallion millions of dollars and everyone else gets like crumbs and not that I care about money. I just want enough money so that I can pay my bills so I can wake up tomorrow and make more music. Mm -hmm. Like I don't want to make, but I want to find a way I want to find a system that I invested in the expensive record player. I buy the records. Yeah, me too. Um, And I think other people just need to start doing that. Like, we don't have the financial freedom. I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but I like as artists, it's hard for us to come up with the scratch to make that $400 investment in Nouvelle. Yeah. But you people who right now are working from your homes and able to continue to make your living wage and whatnot, invest in the world that you want to see in 10 years. Buy the physical record if you want art to maintain a place in your society. Otherwise, it will go away. If you do not nurture it in the way that it needs nurturing, it will go away. And that does not mean just subscribing to Spotify. It means going to shows and buying the records. Um, none of these people, I guarantee, are making it a killing off of this. They're just able to fight another day. So if you've got uh, an income out there and you're listening and you think that you're a fan of music, but you don't buy records, you don't buy tapes, you don't go to shows... You just have your Spotify subscription. That's not cutting it for anybody, you know? Mm -hmm. I I just think that something needs to be done in order for, like, the people who are, like, we're not just, like, kind of, like, good at art. We went to a really great school for it. And we worked really hard to become it because we really love it. And now we're adults in the world trying to create it. And we're, like, trying trying to be, like, A-OK with people just, like, not paying for it or not barely paying for it. I I just think that um, it's a, it's a, at least in the States, it feels like a way larger problem. And. Yeah. Part of it is like also, sorry to interrupt, but I've been talking for a long time without you being able to respond. One last thought there's a part of me that wants to come out with this new record. The one with, uh, you know, the seven stages of man record and have it cost like three grand and be like, fuck you. This costs three grand and it's not streaming. Not that anyone will buy it, but as a statement of like, this is what happens when you allow things that you say you value that you don't actually put time or money into. You know, you if you say you love your family and yet you have a job where you're on the road 11 months of the year, your actions are saying otherwise. So I think maybe my, I'm imploring people's actions to fall in line with what they state are their value systems. So if you say you love music, but all you got is, is a Spotify subscription or whatever other streaming service subscription, I think it's time to reevaluate. I agree. But go ahead. Sorry, I've been yapping a long time on that. I got on my soapbox there. Yeah, I don't know. I guess my 
my mindset since I've been since I started putting music out, I think has mostly been okay, I'm working on a product here and I'm lucky that I have essentially unlimited resources um not unlimited but I can spend very little money and basically have friends do things because everyone's excited about music that's a very uh it's a pretty great position to be in um like I can make records from my basement with my friends that are also in their basements Um, so that's a great thing. And I've also, and from there I've had this idea that, okay, I'm putting out this product that I care about that no one's going to buy. However, if I keep making these things that are good, if people think they're good, eventually these, um, elaborate business cards that I'm making will evolve into a sustainable career down the road. So like the more work I'm doing now, I'm hoping that once the world is back to normal, I can get on that road of like building stuff that I care about and then not worry exactly about the money coming in from this product, but the money coming in from the greater experience of like, Oh, now I can just play a jazz festival that I want to be on. Like right now I can't even like, I'm pretty sure this coming up Toronto jazz festival, even though travel is going to be weird. If it even happens in June when it usually happens, it's largely outdoor. So I think that plays into our favor, but even with, the presumable travel restrictions, I probably won't get on this Toronto jazz festival either. So, well, these are just bigger problems that I'm yammering about, but the idea is if I keep making something, eventually it'll keep spiraling and growing into a place where I can actually have the hope of being a professional musician in real life. So that's the approach that I take, I think. Not so, not being so concerned about the money that my records are bringing in, but just thinking that I'm setting up for the marathon, sort of. Sure. And I think, you know, from a personal ethics standpoint, I, I 100% agree with you. Like, I've come out with these records during quarantine and I'm not expecting them to make much. And in fact, the, um, both the, uh, the, um, bass ensemble record and the, um, a sound simulacra record, the money from that goes directly to black lives matters. 
for both records. So the money isn't turning around and doing anything for me directly. Nor do I want it to. But I think that the culture around music needs to shift in that direction. Otherwise, like you're in a great position right now. You're you're in a basement. You're able to write some music. You're able, well, you've got a, an apartment that you're probably paying rent on while living in a basement. But like right now there's like, for you, it sounds like there's kind of a great situation happening. A bunch of inspired friends with time and energy on their hands to create for uh, many hours a day sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's amazing. And I think that I think down the road, this thing comes to an end, you will have made some amazing art. But I also don't want that to stop. And the truth is, once we get out of basements, unless we want to really take our art and put it into that like part of our life that is like, okay, everyone's asleep now, so from midnight to midnight 30, I can create. But otherwise, during the day, you're doing another job, doing family shit, whatever that is. I would rather have it be that your art was important enough to where that could be your daily job. That you, instead of having to go and work the coffee shop, instead of having to go and work as a doorman, although that can be kind of nice because you're getting to be exposed to a bunch of new players and whatnot, but instead of doing something that is not music, you've worked really hard to be a musician and not just a hobbyist, but a full-time artist. And you're not, I, I'm not hearing you asking for $100,000 a year. Let me eat. Let me pay my rent. It's all. But in order for that to be able to happen after this, people need to have it in their system that music and art is generally of a value that they should be spending money on that they are not. However much, what is Spotify a month? 10 bucks or something or something. Yeah, that's not a that's not that's not a value system. Ten bucks a month is not a value system. Ten bucks a month is like you drop something while you're walking on accident. You know, that's what ten bucks is. Yeah, and we don't all have to believe deeply in music, but if you believe in music, if you believe in art, if you believe in what we're doing, which is trying to like experiment and trying to like use maybe the language of of a lot of free jazz musicians and whatnot and try to like interpret what life is like today. That's if you see value in that, that's more than $10 a month, mm -hmm. you know, especially if you want it to be honest, because you're not, you're making music honestly right now, but if you wanted to make money, money, you'd make a different kind of music. Right. Uh, you try like if you wanted to make hundred thousand dollars a year you would try to be a lawyer session guy for pop musicians a dentist right? a dentist i yeah i mean like that's uh that's definitely something that i would love to do yeah it's um i don't know i play a lot of i like the so the problem is i like everything I feel like embedded in your scenario, 
though, is something else. Because what if it was the option between leading your own band at this jazz club and for the same money playing with Dale Johnson's band? Do I know Dale Johnson, or is that just a random name you made? Who the fuck is Dale Johnson? Okay, all right. <laughs> You'd probably want to play with your band, right? Yeah. If it's who the fuck is Dale Johnson. So I think inherent in your in your example is there is something about playing with being around people who have been successful, who have created a name, who seem to have like at least – you know, business-wise, a lot of things kind of firing on all cylinders. I would do that with someone who has a career, but I wouldn't do it with whatever, whoever I just said, Dale Johnson. Dale Johnson. Yeah. yeah. Dale Johnson from the, uh, nothing. <laughs> I got nothing. I was, uh, still drawing a blank. I was going to say from Dale Johnson from the Sweet Home Alabama's. That that's not their name. What's the band? <laughs> you mean the band that sings "Sweet Home Alabama"? Yeah. Uh, Leonard Skinner. Leonard Skinner. Dale Johnson from Leonard Skinner. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna be opening up for him at a casino up in. Uh... The, the Sweet Home Alabama's is a great band name. That is a great band name, and it would be better. It'd be great if if it was like a thrash metal band. Yeah. Um, but I've been doing this thing with my band recently where I'm, I'm playing like straight up pop music without chords. Like free pop music? Yeah. I call it free pop. Interesting. So I take so like, is it singing? no, or is it like, is it more the feel of it? That like, do you know Julia Michaels? The name sounds really familiar. Is she that workout person? I don't think so. She writes songs. Okay. She's uh, one of these incredibly talented young songwriters who had a career writing for people and then decided to write for themselves and whatever. So I took like, she's got this hit called Issues and I took this chunk. We don't even play the whole song. I just play the chunk of melody that I like and it's an uneven amount of bars and it like loops back into itself and then we play that and then we improvise on it and then we without changes kind of and it's just free music but it's also pop music yeah and i like so i've i've been transcribing some drake to play and a couple months ago when i was back in my apartment transcribing some drake lines my roommate who is a great guitar player, very into this music. When I say this music, I mean like jazz and improvised music. And he thought I was transcribing Ornette when I was transcribing Drake. And I was like, see, there's a connection here. There yeah. is a definite thing here that I think we're all missing. Um, so that's like a... I'm trying to make connections. The, 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 the thing is like... Um, I've sort of stopped saying it recently, but the beginning of this band was, I'm pretty sure we can go to outer space without 
starting at animal noises? Sure. That's basically the, and I, and I say that I say animal noises in like, uh, I think there's a lot of free musicians who are just playing animal fucking animal noises and it's a bunch of racket. That's, I, that's I love like what a dad you just sounded like yeah do you know this uh uh bass player named don thompson yeah canadian guy did uh he's on that jim hall record yeah yeah yeah, yeah which is one of my favorite jim hall records actually yeah. circles oh i don't i'm not sure i only know the, live the name one. of the record maybe um yeah it's got bermuda on it i remember so he's a great Toronto musician who has bounced around from instrument to instrument, sort of like, I believe his first instrument was the piano and then bass and vibraphone. But he was at a, I could be, so this also could be totally wrong. I could have the wrong guy, but I'm pretty sure it's him. He was at a, a master class for some school and someone asked him on his approach to playing free and he made some sort of comment along the lines of like it's pretty hard to make animal noises on a vibraphone so that whatever <laughs> i mean it's a very like um empathetic approach to free music it's i think that what you're saying or at least the way i'm hearing it is like I want to offer free music for more people to be able to get into and enjoy. And sometimes in order to be able to get into it and enjoy, you need to hear some thematic material that you can relate to a little bit more closely. Yeah. But it's also even, that's a, that's a great side effect. Sure. But it's strictly because I enjoy it. Yeah, right. It starts off as like, this is fun. Yeah. I just want to do this. This sounds fun. I'm listening to this music and I listen to, listening to this music. Why, why, why not sort of thing? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, as we've been talking, I've also been kind of considering what it is to be American and what it is to be Canadian and what that can mean outside of music, but as far as having impacts on how we make decisions. And I will say if I don't make, I don't know what, what a good number is, but you know, let's just put a number in there that equals getting by with a family of four. If I don't make that playing music, I don't have health insurance for myself. I don't have health insurance for my family, potentially. I mean, luckily, my wife has a job that can bring in health insurance, but it's like there are some expenses, I think, here that feel maybe very differently. Like the health insurance one is one of them, which is like it feels like a death march to not have or to not be able to afford health insurance. And that's like a that's a big, scary one, which is like, unless I'm actually making my living playing music I, with the family, especially like I have to start looking at other things. Yeah. 
because I can't like let my like love of free music get in the way of my like that's a reality here um and I don't and, and I don't know I I think I'm I'm speaking maybe just from a a standpoint of assumption but I, I I assume that maybe that's not as much of a thought process Canada no no that's I mean, it's only ever crossed my mind when I when I was living in America. Really, that's the only time that thought has ever crossed my mind. And I had insurance when I lived there. And then the reality is, if something bad enough happened to you, you could go back up and get taken care of, right? Yeah. So, like, the, I someone was saying this the other day about something we have a friend who's got like a a a a house somewhere in the states i think like florida or or something and they were saying did you freeze no no i just i (laughs) able to still i sometimes do that during (laughs) what oh sorry i was just like buffering buffering during Uh, I've never heard that word before. Um, the So someone was saying that you can, it's easier and cheaper to be a Canadian in America who's sick. It's cheaper to charter home your own flight than to deal with the American health system. Which is crazy. Yeah, I don't know. I just want to be able to keep making music and and feel like, and not have to like apologize for it in the sense of like, I just want to like have some people like work at the garden store and some people work at the mall. I just want to work at music and have that be like, enough of a value to society but that's okay it's an okay way for me to make a living and right now it's seeming very difficult Hmm. to do that yeah unless it's a very particular thing i'm I'm betting you see this on the internet too but like you know there's like really famous jazz musicians or just musicians in general that are just like you can see they're in the same spot putting up the transcriptions, putting up all the lesson times that they have available, like all that shit. It's just, um, it's that same spot. I've heard, I heard some stand-up comedian do it where they're just like, you don't, they don't just let you be a stand-up comedian. If you get good enough or popular enough at stand-up, they're like, Hey, you like stand-up? Want to star in a movie? And he's like, no, I want to do stand-up. Like, that's why I got into stand-up. I didn't get there as like an intermediate between this and something better yeah how i feel about like experimental music i'm not biding my time with this until like oh now i'm on the cover of bass player magazine and i can really do what i intend to do but you know you gotta buy groceries and shit sorry is this a really depressing version of this talk not even close you should hear some of the other ones (laughs) um yeah, near the beginning of the pandemic, I'm pretty sure I talked about taking my own life on one of them. So we got a <laughs> long way to go. Um, I think there's this. 
yeah, I don't know. See, I think I I was um the combination of being younger than you and getting into music late. I knew that this wasn't I jumped in here making the assumption that I was going to have to have some sort of part-time work for a very long time. Sure. So I guess I sort of like uh I don't know. This is what I expected, so there's not quite the same urgency. And I of course there's less urgency because I don't have a a family or a house, you know, like sure, sure. But I and also don't get me wrong, like getting paid for my music would be exceptional. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also just not entirely at the forefront of my concerns. Yeah. I don't know. It's not for me as like from today, but I think maybe kind of like to play off what you're saying. I started full-time playing in clubs when I was 15 doing like, um, you know, subbing in for like cover bands and that sort of a thing. Um, so if I, if I didn't have to think about it, I wouldn't, but I also, in my, in my personal experience, I have seen like, Oh, there's a, like a very real possibility that I can't afford to actually continue to make music unless the culture changes around. And that doesn't quite seem right to me. It doesn't seem right. So, like, it makes me have to force money into a position that I feel uncomfortable forcing it into because I literally, minus a very little bit, I don't give a shit about money. Like, I just I want to be able to have a, night, a house for my family, eat food, get places in a car. Like, it's not like that I want to accumulate wealth. I just want enough of it to function. But it's actually getting to a point where I might not actually be able to do the only thing that I really know how to do unless things start really changing. I mean, tours are looking weirder. The fact that people try to pay you in exposure is fucking lame. It's just a systematic taking advantage of musicians all the time like how many benefits have you played in your life for whatever um very very few very few yeah maybe a lot of maybe none maybe none i don't exactly have that uh sound <laughs> like i don't like, I'm not sure exactly how that would go. Like, if sure. so, if someone said, do you want to you play this benefit for whatever, I'd be like, well, do you want it to be a benefit? Like... <laughs> Who's benefit? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, have you ever done, like, you know, someone calls you up? Do you do standards gigs? Uh, Very rarely. Very rarely? Like, I'll do it if there's a specific group of people that 
um, I know that if they call me for a standards gig, they know what they're going to get from me and I know what I'm going to, and it's like, sure. You didn't, you didn't choose the, the standards path of improv music. Yeah. Understandable. Like that's, um, but I guess my point is like, I take the ones where I know that the people who are calling me know what they're asking for. Sure. I mean, I guess the reason I ask is like that kind of seems to be a position that it's been a number of years for me, but like I've played a lot of benefits, like done a lot of gigs for free so that that money can, or whatever that event can like put money into some other very worthy cause. But like also I've seen that like musicians tend to be the very first to sign up for benefits, not seen really like, scientist pony up to do a benefit or a lawyer or a clown so it's this industry that is kind of limping around that is also being the most freely sharing of their assets which i think is a great thing from a fucking ethics standpoint it's a terrible thing from a business model and just a continuity standpoint, I, I want to like keep playing and I'm sure you want to keep playing. Like, but eventually your friends will come out of basements and this will all be over and you'll have to, we'll all have to figure out a new organized system in order to like, Oh shit. Like I, I can't really just assume I can get a guitar track from my buddy now that he's like super busy with this and that. And the other thing, like, He's trying to make his money on music. Well, now I don't have any money, but I really want him to play on this track. You know, I don't I just wish money wasn't as, uh, I wish it wasn't a thing, but it unfortunately is. And it's like, I have to make a decision on occasion about doing things with money, not because that's what I really want to be doing, but because that's my, um, that's, those are where my ethics are. I, I think that musicians need to get paid so that they can get their bass fixed, get a fucking sandwich before the gig, you know, whatever it is. I'm going to go upstairs and eat food, but dude, uh, thank you for having me on your podcast. Thank you for being on this. Um, yeah. And thank you for being good at talking and interviewing me. I appreciate it very much. Um, 